All right, we're going to see if this works. I hope so. We'll see. It sometimes it acts up. All right, you guys all ready to go? Okay. I gave you two sheets. One is Romans 9, and then I gave you another sheet. The one sheet, just take a quick glance, how the world turns a blind eye to African slavery. I wanted to call that to your attention because the world does, in fact, turn its, has a blind eye to slavery that's going on right in front of our noses in Africa every day. But you don't hear about it in the media. Okay, so I want you to be aware of this. Slavery has not been eradicated in the world. It's still being practiced in parts of Africa and in the Muslim world in particular. Did you hear what I said? It's just generally speaking, who's responsible for eliminating slavery in the Western world? Christianity. Just keep that in mind. So slavery continues to be practiced in Muslim lands in particular, but not in Christian ones. That's a huge difference. So just read that. I hope you find that interesting. This is from the critic uh, of an English publication. That's where I got it from online. So that's that. Let me go to Psalm 2 with you. I'll connect the dots why I want to go to Psalm 2. Let me get there. Sorry, I'm slow. Okay. Why do the nations conspire? The people's plot in vain. This is Psalm 2 now. Verse 2. Kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together, and notice against two. What's it say? Against the Lord, and against his anointed one. Now this psalm, of course, is fulfilled in the anointed one. Anointed one means Messiah. So that this psalm is fulfilled in who? Who do you think? The Lord Jesus Christ. So you'll note this psalm that David wrote, <clears throat> that the nations conspire and the people's plot. Notice, their plotting is all in vain. Did you catch that? The kings of the earth, they take their stand. The rulers, they gather together and they take their stand and they, they rebel against who? The Lord's appointed. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fears. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. What's this? Here. The Lord has installed his king on the holy hill called Mount Calvary or Zion. Now, why am I bringing this up? Here's why I'm bringing this up. I'm a geek. I know that. And I pay attention to what's going on in the world. And this week, the Senate passed something. It hasn't passed the House yet. But the Senate did. What did the Senate pass? Was it? Yeah, what was the act what was it called? What was the legislation? The Protection of Marriage Act, or the Respect Marriage Act. Uh, it was Respect for Marriage Act, which is a euphemism, euphemism for destruction of marriage, because it's pushing the non-biblical teaching about marriage. I don't need to say more, do I? Okay. And it will, if it's passed, the Congress, the entire the Senate and the House, and signed by the president. It's, it's just, this is another 
nail in the coffin, if you will, of nations in flooding, taking their stand against the Lord. But I wanted to remind you that the Bible says all of their plotting, all of their scheming to overthrow what our Lord Jesus Christ has done here, and what our Lord Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, gives an image of our relationship between a husband and a wife. There's a reason why God created Adam and Eve and they were married, because that's a picture of another marriage, the marriage of our Lord Jesus Christ to his bride, the church. There's a binary. It's male and female. Those are the only binary, okay? There's not 54 things. There's, there's binary, two things, male and so I'm, I'm doing this at the top of my head, but I want to make this point. Don't despair. It may make you angry. It may make you frustrated on what the kings and the rulers of this world are trying to do. But keep in mind that it's all in vain. And what else does the text say? Who laughs in heaven? God laughs in heaven. Because who's in charge? God is. Okay? So don't despair. Now that doesn't mean, I have to give the caveat, that doesn't mean that you sit and do this all day. So sometimes we hear we not only pray for the authority, it doesn't matter who's elected, we pray for them regardless. Okay? And it's not a political statement when we, we, we pray for those in authority. We just simply do what God says in 1 Timothy 2, pray for the kings and all those in authority, so that we can what? In peaceful lives. Okay? Um, and we want them to do their duty, and what duty, their duty faithfully. But in the meantime, we, need, we also pray sometimes on Sunday mornings here that we be responsible citizens. So part of being a responsible citizen is that you vote. Now, I'm not telling you how to vote, but you need to vote. Okay? But you let your Christian biblical worldview help you in your voting. Okay? You're picking up what I'm throwing down. And finally, part of it, again, we're going to have to live with this. We're going to have to learn how to suffer because we as the church are going to have to say, hypothetically, if this thing passes, we're just going to have to say, we're not going to obey it. It's simply not. We're going to have to learn how to suffer. Finally, my point on this, as I prefer just to approach it, is this. Why is this happening? Well, there are lots of reasons why it's happening. There's the world, there's the devil, and then there's what else? There's our sinful flesh. We've been studying in Romans. Remember Romans 7? Christian always battle against his or her sinful nature, which won't go away until you die or buried six feet under. So I just wanted to touch base on this. Why is this happening in the world, what I've just brought up this morning? I think part of the reason is we're responsible. Yes, that's right. We are responsible. I think our elected leaders reflect us to a certain extent. I think they do exactly what they think we want them to do. So I think first and foremost, the church, we need to repent in general, and then individually, we need to take a good, and I'm talking about myself too, I never accept myself to say these things. We need to take a hard look at our lives, how we're raising our families, etc. Say, how much have we contributed to this? Are we teaching our children what's most important? Are we teaching our grandchildren what's most important in life, or aren't we? So I wanted to this point because it's easy to 
me when these things happen to play the blame game and say it's somebody else's fault. It's a yes and no on that. So I'm going to repeat this and we're going to go to Romans 9 and comment. You can tell I'm nervous when I talk about this because uh, <clears throat> I don't speak very well. But I think it's time for us individually as a church to repent, to make honest our lives and say how do we contribute to this so that these elected officials reflect what we supposedly act like we want to do. Any questions or comments? I'll let you respond if you'd like. <laughs> I'm not Pope and fallible, so I'll let you respond. <laughs> this started in Genesis 3. This all started from the beginning. Yep. And But you're right. You're right, man. It's nothing new. And again, do you understand my point? Satan went after Eve. And Adam stood there like a doofus and abandoned headship in the church and the family. See, this is my point. I, so when men do not exercise headship in the church and in the family, I think that's why we're at where we're at. <clears throat> so I said, I'll need to and we need to do better. Right. So Satan went after Eve. She usurped the Not only in the family, but in the church. And she preached. And Adam stood there and let her do it. Okay. And that's what's happening today. You, they have better words than the Lord. Someone said to God, really say, we're at a point in our country where we're told, you know, God can say this. You can be God. Your words are better. You say what's good. You say what's evil. Anything else? Yes, please. Another thing, we are tempted, and this is just an anecdotal thing. We're tempted. So let's say, for example, if I run for school board for the, the school district here, I would be told if you elected to keep your Christianity out of the school board, you can't put your Christian beliefs to this board. I'll give them two fingers. I would do that. That's, I think that's where we failed as Christians individually, and that's where we failed as the church in general. So I want to repeat this one more thing. I think it's time for the gentleman to be repented and faith most especially because it's time for the gentlemen in the church to be leaders and to be heads of their families and their congregations. Wives, they need to be repented and the women need to be repented. They need to tell men, no, you be the leader in this family. You be the leader in this congregation. I can't do it. I want you to be the leader. You take charge and be a man. Don't be like Adam. Genesis 3, just stand there, and I have to speak. Don't do that. I, I, I'm not trying to be harsh with you, you understand? I'm trying to be very pastoral and caring, see? But there are some households where the man doesn't want to do it, so the woman does have to step up. God bless you women who do that, by the way. Seriously. God bless you women who have to do it by yourself. Be to God. Romans 9. 
All right, so Romans 9, we are going to learn that it's all grace. As Paul has continually taught us in Romans, it's all by grace. It's not by the law. Okay? Oh, to uh, get my... Here we go. Here we go. Let's read Romans 9, and then I want to make some comments. You have the before you. Paul says in verse 1, Now, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. And here's the key. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I can sympathize with Paul, pastor. Follow me around, be in my shoes for a while, and, and deal with people. You'll, you'll learn great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul, what's the cause of that? I have, could wish that I myself be cursed and were cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul knows, because he experienced it, just like the other apostles and other preachers in the early church. Where did they go first with preaching the gospel? They followed our Lord's example. Where did they always go first? To the synagogue. They always went to their people first. Right? Paul did that until Jesus finally told Paul, I want you to go to the Gentiles. Okay? By the way, side note, when you read in the gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and when Jesus sends out his preachers, he sends about two two. Did you ever notice that? Two two. And in Acts, exactly what they continue to do. Two by two and maybe even more. Continue to follow that pattern. But again, Paul is just it's in heartache and anguish because his people, the Jewish people, the Messiah came, the Lord Jesus Christ, and rejected him. And it just brings him immensely. The parable is this. When the pastor, these people in a congregation fall away, who are lifelong receptors, who fall away, the anger and the heartache, reaching out to these people, trying to get them to come back, and basically you just get two middle fingers, or silence, you know? The heartache and the anguish. This is Paul, okay? Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs is the divine glory. What does that mean? It means God's glory, God's presence was among these people, okay? That's why there was a temple built. Covenants, the receiving of the law, namely they're the ones who got the Ten Commandments. Temple worship. And then finally, the promises. The promises, the promises of the coming Savior, Jesus Christ. They all had it. They had it all. Verse 5. Those are the patriarchs. Who are the patriarchs? Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Joseph, Moses, etc. Those are the patriarchs. Make sense? And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. And trace and Matthew did it. Luke did it. Check it out. Matthew one, chapter one. Matthew is the genealogy of Jesus. Luke does it in his gospel. Trace it and trace it back to. Well, there you got it. Like David and Adam. Verse six. It's not as though God's word had failed. I'll say more about that in a minute. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So I'm going to just, I can't help myself. I have to say more about this. What makes you 
Hebrew in the Bible. Is it just tracing your ancestors back to Abraham? It is not. It makes you a true Hebrew or an Israelite in the Bible. It's faith in the promised Savior. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter what's your nationality. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a true Israelite. I said that on purpose because there are many false preachers in this world who will say, if you're a Jew and if you can trace your ancestors back to Abraham, and if you don't believe in Jesus, you'll still go to heaven. That's absolutely false. By the way, who's the most prominent preacher of the United States? Billy Graham. Graham. You didn't know that, did you? Yeah. I grew up watching Billy Graham on TV. Yeah. I, I watched him when it was black and white. Oh, yeah. But he taught this false teaching. And there are many still to this day believe that, it, that ancestry will get you to heaven, not faith. That's wrong. Keep that in mind. So I have to repeat this. A true Israelite is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, no matter what the color of your skin. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Nor because they, they are his descendants, are they all from Abraham. i got to start this over. Nor because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. This is huge. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Verse 8. In other words, not the natural children or God's children, but it is the children of the, the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Get it? I tried to explain it. Got it? Okay. Because, you know, Abraham had another son before he had Isaac. What was his name? Ishmael. He was the firstborn. He should have been the one from whom the Messiah would come. Nope. God said, nope. It ain't gonna, ain't, the Savior ain't coming through Ishmael. Because he wasn't, because Ishmael, his mother was who? Not Sarah. God told Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have children. Sarah, the barren one, who's never been able to have kids, she will give birth to a son. And it'll be through his line that the Savior will come. Not Ishmael. By the way, why not? Because remember the story. Abraham and Sarah had trouble believing God's promise that they'd be pregnant. Remember Sarah laughed? Isaac literally means he laughs. Okay? Remember they laughed. And so what did Abraham and Sarah do? They took matters in their own hands. We'll see it ourselves. Okay? So Abraham, this handmaiden, have it through her, Hagar, and he'll be the son of the promise. And God said, uh-uh, ain't going to be that way. I choose. It's all by grace. You're not in charge. It ain't happening about what you do. It's by grace. It. Grace. So not all the natural children of Abraham are true Israelites. You have to believe in the promise. Verse 9. This was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father. Our father, Isaac. Remember, Isaac married Rebecca. Yet before the twins were born, Rebecca had twins, remember their names? Esau and Jacob, who was born first. Esau was born first. 
Jacob was grasping in his heel when they came out of the womb. Okay, remember? But the point is, Esau was born first. Jacob second. More on that in a moment. Verse 11, Not before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told. The older, namely Esau, will serve the younger, that's Jacob. Verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. If that troubles you, I'll make comments about that in a little bit. Hang on tight. Verse 14, what then shall we say? Now again, Paul is trying to answer the question, what went wrong with my people Israel? Why did they reject the Messiah? My anguish is anguished about it. Heart. What's going on? Well, you're learning from the Old Testament. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, Paul says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up. Now, this is very interesting. God raised up Pharaoh for what purpose? That I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you remember what did Pharaoh do? I ain't letting these people go. No way. And then he'd say, okay, I'll let, it, let you go, and then he'd renege. And God hardened his heart, do you remember? More on that in a moment. Verse 18, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed, namely the creature, say to him, the creator, who formed it, the creature, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter, that's God, have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God chooses to show his wrath and make his power known or with great patience of his wrath prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Isaiah, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place that was them not my people, they will become sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. How many of you sow? Some of you sow, don't you? What's the remnant? It's that little leftover piece, right? Only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. 
we would have become like Gomorrah. But God preserves a what? A remnant of believers. How's that spelled in the Bible? C-H-U-R-C-H. Of both Jew and Gentile believers. Now verse 30. Shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness, a righteousness that is faith. But Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not obtained it. Why not? Because they pursued it by faith. Israel didn't, they didn't believe. As it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Who's the stumbling stone? Right here, here it is. Didn't believe in him. And so they stumbled over him. Final part of verse chapter 9, verse 33, as it is written. And you, again, if, you, if you're noticing, Paul is always quoting the Old Testament. Always. To show you that what happened here, both unbelief in him and faith in him, fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Finally, see I lay in Zion a stone, that's this, that causes men to stumble. You heard this before. February 2nd, and that's coming up pretty quickly, on February 2nd, in the church here, the presentation of our Lord. That's the time when Mary and Joseph bring the 40-day-old Jesus to the temple to do what was required. And who was there in the temple? Simeon. We think he's an old man. The text doesn't say it, but we think he's an old man because he had been promised by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had seen who? The Lord's Christ. And lo and behold, Christ shows up, 40 day old baby, in Mary and Joseph's arms. And remember, Simeon takes that baby in his arms and says, Lord, now I can depart. Now I can die in peace. My eyes have seen your salvation. Remember? Now is the point. Then Simeon tells Mary, this little boy, I'm paraphrasing, this little boy, the Messiah, he will be the cause of the fall and the rise of any Israel. Two things. Stumbling stone, if you don't believe, but you do believe, so he will be a sign of those who fall and those who are raised it all depends on whether you believe in it or you don't. This is a constant theme of the Bible, and Paul quotes this. Again, See, I lay in line a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him, Jesus, the stone, will never be put to shame. Now, Paul is pushing faith in Jesus Christ in here, and his anguish, of course, is over his people that will not believe the gospel. All the gifts, he listed the gifts. Check it again in verse uh, four and following. Adopted sons, divine glory, covenants, receiving the law, people worship, promises, the patriarch. They've got it all. God gave them everything, and they wouldn't receive it. This is the heartache and anguish. So we have to and so we ask, well, what happened? They didn't believe that's what happened. And this, this is a tragedy in the world, okay? Questions before we look at the sheet. All right, so look at the sheet that I gave you. Romans 9, it says Romans 9, by grace, not rules, or not the law. So have you ever wondered about the Israelites? Blood descendants of Abraham? 
God's chosen people and what went wrong. If the gospel is the power to save, as we heard in Romans 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. Remember Romans 1? So if the gospel is the power to save, why didn't Israel for the most part believe? Why did they reject their own Messiah? They had it all. They had the adoption as sons. They had the divine glory. They had the covenants. They had the commandments. They had the temple. Remember, God put his name at the temple. I have to say something. This is huge. You hear this. I have to explain this. They were given the temple. Solomon built the temple. Why? So that God put his name there. And remember, God's name is not a nothing. God's name is divine and saving. When he gives his name, he gives himself for his people. So eventually, God had given himself to his people, Israel. And they didn't believe it. They so if you, one of the greatest tragedies in the history of Israel, seriously, folks, read this if you can't sleep at night and got insomnia. You read, read 2 Kings, read 2 Chronicles in the Old Testament, and read the account of Solomon, the one who built the temple, prayed for wisdom, and God gave him wisdom that no one else had ever had ever in the world. And yet Solomon is responsible for Israel's rejection of God. Because what did he do? In order to establish his kingdom and make it stronger, he did marriages with who? He'd make a deal with the king of Jordan. He'd make a deal with the king of Assyria. He'd say, give me a daughter as a wife. Okay? And he'd cut these deals to, you know how it works. And what happens as a result of these marriages with foreign women? By the way, he breaks which commandment? Sixth, marrying more than one woman, right? So don't get in your head that you can marry more than one. Solomon did it. No, he sinned. Adam and Eve, beginning, one woman, one man, wife and husband. That's it. That's one of the big problems. So they commit adultery in state, and the adultery is on steroids. Okay? And as a result of this, these foreign women are foreign gods. And Solomon builds places of worship for the Israelites to worship foreign gods. And this is one of the reasons why God said, I'm paraphrasing, if that's the way you want it, Sadly, I'll just give it to you then. I trust the false gods and not me. Okay, but you're And the Assyrians came. And the Babylonians came. And Israel was no more. And the Romans came. And 70 AD, Titus destroyed the temple that Herod tried to rebuild. And it just devastated Jerusalem. Okay, so they've got everything. And the word appeared. The, so the put his name here. So where his name is, he's there. And the worship is this. I can't emphasize this enough. The worship in the Old Testament is no different. I'm talking about biblical worship. Biblical worship in the Old Testament is no different than worship in the New Testament. God, God is among his people to serve them. Remember 22? I'm kind of getting carried away. I can't help myself. That's what you get cool me here. You remember Luke 22 when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and the disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest among them? They're like politicians. These are apostles acting like politicians. Who's going to be the greatest? What did Jesus say? That 
going to happen, boys, on my church, because I am among you, I quote verbatim, I am among you as one who serves, and in present tense, meaning he continues to do it. So Old Testament worship, God, his name, he's there to serve you. New Testament, well, you've got, you come to church every Sunday, how does the service happen after you sing the opening hymn? The pastor says, and we all pray in our hearts and minds as the pastor prays this invocation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Whose name is that? Mine. It's God's name. The name he put you in your baptism, his divine and saving name. That invocation is a prayer, and we're asking God to be present with us according to his name, because now our bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit, right? Because of baptism. So we are asking God to be present to serve us with his gifts. And so God speaks to us in his word. And then Jesus gives us his body and blood. See how it works? He's among us to one who serves. And it all begins with his name. Because where his name is, there he is. In the serving. That's a side note. Do you have any questions about that? That's just huge. So you're picking up what I'm throwing down real quickly here. What is the, what is the highest worship that you give to Jesus? Not your wife? Who said that? That's right. Faith. She's, she's a good listener. Good learner. And, and we, uh, now, see, so now the final part of this, the highest worship of Jesus is faith. And faith is primarily what? Passive. It is given to you. By whom? The Lord. So when you go to church, the Lord speaks. This faith, it listens. Can you imagine? No, can you, I'm sorry. I don't mean to imitate anyone when I say that. That's just no, no joke. Can you imagine if you see me doing it during the service? You'd be appalled. What if Colin's doing this? <sighs> what would you think? Yeah, bored to death. That's Americans, by the way. Just bored to death. Because it ain't happened second after second, right? That's a whole nother thing. But my point is, is that faith doesn't act like that. It comes to church, and faith is like this. What did you say? Oh, thanks be to God. I'm forgiven for... Oh, my... Thank you, God. Come and eat his... Oh, my... Yeah, thank you, God. So God speaks. God gives. We listen. His words have their way with us. They enliven us so that faith that is passive given to you then becomes active. So on the one hand, faith is passive, receiving the Lord's gifts in his word. Okay? And as he gives his gifts through his word, now faith is active. And that's prayer, praise, thanksgiving. So you got both of the, both of these things going on when you come to church. He speaks, we listen. His words have their way with us. We pray, praise, and give thanks. That's how it works. The whole service is like this. God speaks, God gives. We respond. Prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. God speaks, He gives. We respond. And then we leave life extended in this activity. And that activity that flows from faith is spelled L-O-V-E. 
So by talking about at the beginning, men, you're going to love your families by being part of your family, and you're going to, you're going to take part in a congregation and be head in the congregation. You're going to do things in the congregation. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that women can't do anything in the congregation. Don't misunderstand me, okay? Maybe you want that impression. <laughs> cool men can give that impression. But why, generally speaking, why aren't men coming to church anymore? I'm speaking in general. Because the pastor's acts feminine. Well, okay, but like Aaron, you remember, I'm getting really carried away. Can I say more about this or not? Huh? Okay, thank you for the permission. All right, so you remember Aaron, Exodus 32? I'm a very blunt here, and it's not really funny. At this point in Israel's life, Aaron had the wrong genitalia. He was transitioning, if you will, to the language of today. Because what happened? Moses was on Mount Sinai. Getting instructions from the Lord about worship. But all this stuff. Namely, how the Lord is going to serve Israel through the sacrificial system, etc. Moses was up there for a number of days, and the Israelites are down at the foot of the mountain, and the Israelites get arrested. And what did they say to Aaron? Remember, Aaron is whose brother? Moses' brother. Okay. What did they say to Aaron? Well, when Moses is back, died up there, I'm paraphrasing. He's probably dead as a doornail up there, died of altitude sickness. Okay. So Aaron, why don't you make gods for us that will take us to the promised land? Now, Aaron, this is what I mean when Aaron was transitioning. He forgot to be a man. He said, well, okay, whatever. give me your gold earrings and your nose earrings and all your bracelets and all that kind of stuff. I'll melt it down. And voila, out came a what? A golden cap. And what did he is your God. A, a man wouldn't do that. Speaking in general to make my point. Aaron, as a man, would have said, no, not doing that. That's idolatry. We will wait for the Lord. We will wait. We must repent of this. The Lord will take care of us. So, one of the reasons why, again, I'm being carried away, but one of the reasons why men don't go to church anymore is because a lot of, a lot of men act like Aaron. Whatever, whatever floats your boat. And men see this. You know, I don't want to be a part of that. Sorry. Any questions about that? As far as the king is concerned, <clears throat> however, that did go on. Well, they all, this, this is part of how God has matrixed this binary thing into the world. Whether you believe it or not, it's matrixed into the world. So that's why this happens. It's just, it's natural, okay, that a man will go to a woman to be married. It's natural for the opposite. And that's why Solomon knew that. He had enough sense in that, okay. But he was a rude politician. And so he was willing to commit adultery, willing to do a lot of things to consolidate his power. I don't know if I answered your question, but your point's well made. <clears throat> well, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. That's absolutely true. We learned in Romans 1 that this is totally unnatural. The man 
and woman is totally natural. And here again, notice how it's so matrix in people's minds, even when they rebel against it, that when you have a couple, when you have two women that are in a relationship and they show up public events or in their life, one is dressed like a man, one is dressed like a Generally speaking, this is how matrix it is. And I haven't said it yet. One of these days, maybe when I'm crotchy enough, I probably will. To the, to the woman dressed like a man, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm confused. What are you? What are you? Are you a woman or are you a man? I don't get it. Well, yeah, it's another issue. But, but that's, I don't think I'll ever do that publicly. I may do it, but you know, I'm just, you know, I'm getting carried away. But your points will take it. Now, back to the sheet. Back to the sheet. Now, I had now something said at this table. Uh, did you see Marie's? Right. And I, okay, now, this goes back to Genesis 3. You shall be as God. You will say what is evil. You will say what is good. And so, people who, when we allow people to decide based upon emotions what, quote, truth is, you have furries. And if you don't know what that is, talk to Jen. She'll tell you. <laughs> okay. This is the, again, this is the crisis. This is the crisis of the family. This is the crisis of the church. And then the crisis is what? We fortnightly teach our, our children. We'll fortnightly teach people that we can withstand these things. Not only withstand them, but rather so that God will do what? Bless us. Things are happening. It's not blessing. But if we make decisions that go against his he's not going to bless that. Simply is you may think you're doing all right, but God's not blessing it. And if you think you're going, if you in other words, if you if Coolman's doing something that is contrary to the word of God, and he's getting away with it and he thinks he's okay, God's saying, huh, uh, uh. Classic example that comes to mind is David. David committed adultery. He wanted her. I think she wanted him. She took a bath in full view. He'd see she said he would her. Remember that? Ladies, how many of you take a bath in the open? You don't. You don't. I guarantee you don't. Shut the door, you lock the door, you close the curtain. And if Tom comes to the bathroom and Janelle shower, Janelle says, get out! I'm taking a shower. I love you, Tom. Get out! Okay? Bathsheba takes a bath so that David can see her. They knew other, by the way. They did. They knew each other. Continue Second Samuel, you'll find that out. They knew each other. They knew Uriah. They knew each other. And of course, my point, so David committed adultery, utter pregnant, and as a result of trying to cover up the pregnancy, he murdered Uriah. Now, for an entire year, David lived, and he, he pulled it off. Remember, how did he finally clinch, clinch it? Make sure that all of Israel thought it was all legit. Well, after Uriah was murdered, now the soldiers, Joab the general, and a lot of soldiers knew what David had done. So did the royal court, the insiders. They all knew what David had done. So there's no doubt that word had leaked out. But generally speaking, um, David wanted all Israel to know that what he had done was legit. So after Uriah dies and David finishes the mourning for his dead husband, what did David do? I'm going to, uh, yeah, sorry, I'm going to. I'm going to paraphrase it in my own words. David goes out in full public in front of all of his says, You know this poor woman? All devastated that she lost her husband. Oh, 
take care of this poor widow woman. And here's how I'm going to do it. And you're going to love me for it. I'm going to take care of her. I'm going to ask her to marry me. And she says, yeah, I will. And then they have a royal wedding, like Charles and Di. Okay? Everybody sees this royal wedding. And the baby bumps shows. And everybody thinks it's legit. Now, my point is in 2 Samuel 11, David thought he got away with it. For an entire year, he got away with it. But at the end of this, all of this, what did the text say? What's it say in the, at the end of 2 Samuel 11? But what the Lord, what David had done, displeased the Lord. Now, thanks be to God that, that God sent a pastor to David. You want to talk about a gutsy pastor before the king? King can cut off his head. For any reason. And if you have the king off, accuse him of something, off with your head. Gutsy pastor. By the way, being a pastor is exceptionally gutsy business. So Nathan goes to David and tells a story and sets him up, and he says, You're the one who stole the lamb. You're the you're, And David finds him, the long story short, confessed his sin, and, David, and then Nathan said, you're forgiven, forgives you. Now, there were consequences for this besides this, but again, the whole point of telling all of this is that God did not bless what David had done. And as a result of David not being a faithful husband and not being a faithful father, there were other consequences in his life. Remember what else happened in David's life? So he's committed only, he's murdered, and what else happened? Because he, he did not Oh, I'm getting way too carried away. You can read it, read it in the Old Testament. Back to this. Israel's got everything. Now, so Jesus, of course, is uh, part of the story here. Uh, Israel is God's firstborn son, Exodus 4. And so Israel, the nation, is a forerunner, a type, or foreshadowing of Jesus himself. Okay? Father's only begotten from eternity's son. So Israel is our Lord's own blood relatives to them among the patriarchs. Their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Okay. So what wide, wide, wide world of sports, to quote the old BC show on Saturdays, the wide, wide, wide world of sports went wrong here. Did the word of God fail? To deliver good? Did it fail to work faith? Did it fail to accomplish its purpose? The reason I ask that is because we need to know the answer to that question. Because God's word failed with. Hypothetically, if God's word failed with Israel, God's own nation, God's own people, how in the world can we be sure that? Uh, won't fail with us. That's why we need to answer this question. What went wrong? Okay. We read the New Testament in particular. Jesus himself sent, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often would I have your children together as a he gathers the brood under her wings? Here's the answer to the question. What went wrong? It ain't Jesus' fault. He wanted to gather these people. He wanted them to believe in him. What's the answer to the question? You are not willing. Now, let's remember the power of sin that flows from unbelief, of course. Uh, and Paul talks about 
this in Romans 3. We, we studied before the power of sin in our lives, which leads to unbelief. This is a huge tragedy, unbelief. And unbelief is a will that's bound. Unbelief is will that is bound, and it could be nothing else but disbelief. I want to, as the kids come in, I want to illustrate this. When you're an unbeliever, and you, you don't believe, this is your constant 24-7-365-0 rebellion. 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 And here's an illustration to make my point. Have you ever gone to visit someone who has emphysema? Okay. And maybe they've smoked their entire lives and that's why they have emphysema. And you go to visit this person and they're on oxygen. And then you go in and you visit and what does that person do? Lights up a cigarette with the oxygen tank right there and the oxygen going in the nose and light a cigarette and start smoking it. That is, that is an illustration of what it means to have a bound will. That is a will, an unbelieving will that can do nothing else but unbelieve. It's like a smoker who can't quit, even if the danger of blowing himself up is there. They just can't quit. That's unbelief. <laughs> so it's a miracle for this to change. Pray this prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 